You can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're taking a short break from our study in the book of Philippians to look at that section of Acts where Paul first went to the city of Philippi and met those to whom he would later write this letter. We'll be reading the whole chapter. Acts chapter 16. This is the word of God. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through all the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day... The magistrates sent to the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison? And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. When grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever, let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe that he is at work amongst us, and we ask that he and your word would join together to teach us, to have us understand about you and what you are doing in the world, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, and that we would seek to live more faithfully to your vision. For our lives. Do what we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I come by this a little honest, because my dad's the same way, but anytime there's some kind of construction going on, as I'm driving by over the weeks and months is happening, I'm like, oh, what are they doing now? I wonder how they're going to do that part of it. You know, the bridges that are being expanded, the bridge and tunnel, uh, as, as painful as it is to drive through the traffic, it is always interesting to me to see what's going on. Why are they doing that part first, and how are they going to pull this off and that kind of thing? And it's just interesting to see, as, as a novice who doesn't really know too much about construction, that the choices that are made, the order, and, and the way things have to fall into place. We see a similar kind of thing happening in this passage, because we see Paul, as he he's didn't intend to go to Philippi, He wasn't planning on going there. He was planning on his missionary journey to to go almost straight west, 
maybe a little bit south, down to Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit presented it, prevented him from doing that. And instead, he turned north. He's like, okay, we'll go that way. And the Holy Spirit said, nah. And so they went west to Troas. And then eventually, they're going to go across the sea to Philippi. Paul never intended to be in this spot. But we see over the course of this, as the Holy Spirit pushes them farther than they intended to go, to places they never intended to witness at this time, that God is at work. And so they go to Philippi, and they meet this woman, Lydia, and she believes. And they, they come across this slave girl who is possessed, and they exorcise the demon in the name of Jesus. And as a result, they're imprisoned unjustly, and they are rescued by an earthquake. And they witness to their own jailer who believes he and his household. And then they're vindicated in public. And they go on to encourage the brothers and go even farther than Philippi. Because God was doing more than Paul even realized. We see that God is at work building his church through the transforming power of Jesus' name and all kinds of people in all kinds of places. God is at work building his church through the transforming power of Jesus' name and all kinds of people and places. And we're going to look at those four people that Paul and Silas encounter. We're going to look at Timothy, who we see comes to the faith through education. We're going to look at Lydia, who we see comes to be rescued through explanation. We're going to look at the slave girl who has a demon exercised from her and is rescued in the power of Jesus' name. And we're going to look at the jailer who has an experience unlike any other and comes to believe. But first, we're going to look at Timothy. This man, Timothy, is the son of a Jewish woman who had come to faith in Jesus. So she's a Jewish Christian woman. Elsewhere we learn her name is Eunice, and her, uh, his grandmother's name is Lois. And we, we learn elsewhere that both of them poured into Timothy what they knew about Jesus and taught him of the faith. He was raised, he was brought up in a partially Christian household. He was raised in the fear and admonition and discipline of the Lord as the Scriptures encouraged Christians to do. And as a result, we see that he lives up to his name. Timothy means honoring God. That's what his name means in Greek. And we see that that he lives up to it. He is well spoken of by the brothers. This isn't just, oh yeah, we know Timothy. He's a good kid. This is, he is well spoken of. He is faithful. He lives out the faith that has been handed down to him by his mother and grandmother. That's why Paul can say in his own letter to Timothy, let no one look down on you because of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And this is a good thing, that Timothy was raised in the faith. Sometimes we can can kind of look down a little bit, sometimes even ourselves. Someone like me who was raised in the faith, who never knew a time when we didn't believe, it can be kind of like, it's not not really that special of a story. But that's not the case in other things. There's a story in the the most recent Olympic Games of this runner who ended up with a silver medal, who 
decided to run her first or second marathon at the Olympic trials. That's an astonishing story. But if that happened all the time, it would really skew our perspective. When we hear about a marathon runner, we expect that they've spent years training and pursuing this goal. That's the the normal way that these kinds of things happen. And so we see an example of that here in Timothy. Timothy is perhaps the premier example of what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 7, about an unchristian husband making his wife holy, or an unchristian or a Christian uh, husband making his wife holy, or a Christian wife making her unbelieving husband holy. And then he goes on to say, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They are set apart. They are different because of your relationship to the Lord. And so Timothy was poured into by his mother and by his grandmother, and he believed such that he was well-spoken of. And Paul is like, let's get this kid on our team. We're going to take him with us. There is a little bit of a hiccup, though, because he is, he is partially Jewish. Uh, he would be considered a law violator. He wasn't circumcised. And so the Jews would look at him and say, you're Jewish, but you're not following the law. And they would not even begin to entertain anything he had to say. And so Paul, who elsewhere is absolutely opposed to circumcision as a means of salvation— says, but for the gospel pursuit that the Lord Jesus' name would be made known, we are going to circumcise Timothy so that when we go and we are trying to win Jews to Christ, it will not be a hindrance and a stumbling block for them. This is what he expresses in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says that he becomes to those who are under the law, to those who are still following the Mosaic law, as one under the law. He will follow the law knowing it's not for his salvation, but he will do it so that he might win them to Christ. And so he does that. He sees the gospel at work in Timothy, and he gets him on the pursuit of this mission, no matter what it takes. Personal comfort is secondary Paul for the mission of the, making Christ's name known. Would that it were for us more often. Later in Scripture, we see that Timothy is called by Paul his true child in the faith. So beneficial, so life-giving, so encouraging is their relationship that Paul calls him his true child in the faith. He even cites him as a co-author to the letter to the Philippians. Timothy goes on to lead a church He will receive two letters of pastoral wisdom that are immensely helpful scripture for the life of the church. He'll go on to inspire my own parents, give me the name Timothy. Just a little side note. See, this if this is your testimony, what Timothy's is, that you were just raised this way. You never knew anything else. Be encouraged. This is a beautiful thing. You are a child of the covenant that God so loved your parents and so loved you that he brought you in in this way. This is the normal MO of God's people throughout the vast majority of his history that parents would hand this down to their children. Parents, you have a high, holy, important calling. We can get caught up in the tedium 
and the difficulty and the annoyance, the frustration of parenting, and forget this, this immense privilege that we have. God has given us children who witness his love because we are representing God to our children. We are going to shape the way that they think about God for the rest of their lives. So we should treat that very carefully. We should show them immense love to represent the immense love and affection that God has for us. Grab them, hold them, hug them, kiss them, even the teenage boys that are going to squirm underneath it. Tell them that you love them and that God loves them. And show them Jesus in the way that you treat them. So we see Timothy, who comes to faith through the education of his mother and grandmother, and he goes with them, even as the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go here, don't go here, go this way. And Paul's group, they're flexible to, to God's direction. They, they pick up Luke along the way. I don't know if you noticed in verse 10, it switches to we went this way. All of a sudden, Luke, who's writing this letter, is going along with them. And they're heading over the Adriatic Sea to Philippi. And at Philippi, they're they meet this woman, Lydia. And Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant it had special privileges. It's called a leading city of Macedonia, is the way it puts it. It means they didn't have to pay taxes. Oftentimes, there would be retired Roman soldiers that went and lived there. Um, it was kind of laid out like a mini-Rome, kind of organized in the same way. They were very proud of this heritage. But they didn't have any, maybe not but, maybe because of that, they didn't have many other religions prospering there. Now, there's a, a minimum requirement of 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue in any city. And we see there is no synagogue in Philippi. So that means there were very few Jews in this city, which would be somewhat odd for a Roman city. And so Paul and his group, they go to the river. This is this is kind of Paul adjusting on the fly. Normally, he would go to a city and go to the synagogue. He's like, these people know the scriptures, so I'm going to convince them of Jesus as the Messiah. But he can't do that here, so he goes to the river where he would expect anyone who did have any inkling of God, the living God, Yahweh, would meet and gather. Lo and behold, he's correct. And so he meets this group, and he's preaching to them, and he's teaching them, and he's explaining to them, connecting it to the Old Testament and what God has revealed so far. And as a result, he meets this woman who understands, Lydia. She's a merchant. She imports purple cloth, which was an immensely expensive commodity. So expensive. It's lightly importing it from Thyatira, her hometown, which was known for producing this, this purple cloth. And it seems like this business is working out pretty well for her, that she's pretty successful because she has a household that's large enough to accommodate this group of tra travelers and to extend hospitality to them. But more important than that, we see that she is a worshiper of God. This would be what the, the Jews would call a God-fearer. This is someone who's not ethnically Jewish, but who has somehow come to an understanding of the faith and is seeking to be faithful and to follow after what God has revealed. And so as Paul's explaining, as Paul is preaching and proclaiming the word of Jesus, she has some knowledge that she brings to the table, but she can't get herself all the way there. 
what happens? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. She had knowledge, for sure. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. This is always the case. There is no understanding. There is no saving faith without the Lord opening your heart to pay attention. Sometimes when I'm trying to explain things or, or have a, a serious conversation with my kids, I'll, you know, I'll get down on their level, I'll try to speak slowly, I'll use concepts they can understand, and, and sometimes uh, we'll be there and Elizabeth will be like, wait a second, TJ, what did your dad just say? And they're like, uh, I, I don't know. They weren't paying attention. <laughs> doesn't matter how good my explanation was, doesn't matter how careful I am trying to, to put it in a way that they understand, if, if they're distracted, if they got something else going on, if they're too rambunctious or round up, it's, they're just not going to understand. In the same way, it doesn't matter what knowledge we bring to the table. It doesn't matter how good our apologetics are. You could have the killer argument that just absolutely proves God in a perfectly logical sense, and if they don't have their heart open to understand, it's not going to happen. And so we see... She believes, and she's baptized. And not only her, but, but also members of her household believe and are baptized. This is echoed later in the jailer. We see this also earlier in Acts with Cornelius. Again, this is the normal MO of God's work, that it comes to households, that it comes to families. This speaks to her influence on them, not just as a, as a domineering master, but as someone who lives well. She asks if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. And she impresses upon them to come and stay with her. She immediately extends hospitality to them. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This hospitality is in part a proof of the reality of her faith. It's not that, that she earned it through her hospitality, but that we can see her faith is real because it immediately extends into hospitality towards these new brothers in Christ. And they stay with her for some days. The Greek there can mean four or five, even more days. They stay with her. And they continue to meet with God's people. Even at the end of the chapter, it seems like the number has, has grown. And they're now meeting in Lydia's house, not by the river. What does this mean for us? What can we learn from Lydia? There is a space for apologetics. There is a space for being able to articulate well a defense of the reason for the hope that we have. But that's not it. God ultimately opens the heart. And so maybe, don't, don't misconstrue this, but maybe we could spend more time praying than rehearsing our arguments. We could spend more time throwing ourselves before the throne of God, asking for Him to do work in people, instead of depending on our own knowledge to get them there. We also see in Lydia that faith is followed by a working out of that salvation. As she works out into her household, and they believe. And as she shows hospitality to Paul and Silas and those with them. So Lydia comes to faith through the opening of her heart 
such that she can have it explained to her. And then we see this slave girl. The idea is, as Paul and and Silas are continuing to minister, continuing to go to the the riverside and pray and explain and proclaim to people, they encounter this slave girl who, it says, is possessed by a spirit of prophecy. The Greek actually ties it a little bit to the story of of Apollo, who wrestled the python spirit to to make way for his own uh, prophesiers. Um, And so it seems like she has this spirit that, that at least to those around her, appears to have the ability to tell the future. And so her owners are are getting profit through this. She's predicting people's future, and they're getting paid for that. But when she comes across Paul, she says, she cries out even, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Much like demons who encounter Jesus in the Gospels, they speak a truth. They twist it oftentimes, but they recognize the power that's going on here. But this, there's almost a sense of, of, of sarcasm or, or a little bit of a, a misconstrued expression of what she's saying. The Greek, that for they're proclaiming the way to salvation, can, can also be a way of salvation. So the spirit that's within her could just be saying, hey, these guys got an option for you. And also, when, when she says the Most High God, in that context, it's not clear that people would have understood that she was referring to the God of creation. They, she could have just been referring to Zeus or another pagan deity. And that might explain why Paul is so annoyed. I kind of love that detail, that Paul was greatly annoyed after a few days. He's like, oh, I'll let it go. Ah, fine, I'm done with this. And then he, he calls it out. He might be annoyed because... Uh, this was a non-Christian testimony to the reality of what he was proclaiming. This is, in a sense, kind of taking what he is saying about Jesus and just slipping it into the context of paganism. And he's not okay with that. He wants to center Christ in the salvation of the world. He wants to center Christ and, and, and completely uh, remove it from the idolatry of this day and age that he finds himself in. And so he commands the Spirit to leave in the name of Jesus Christ. And it did that very hour. He commands it to leave in the name of Jesus Christ. And the assumption of most scholars is that the slave girl received salvation and that she eventually joined the Philippian church. I'm not going to try to convince you of that, but I will say this, that oftentimes there is a marriage of God's power to save physically and his power to save spiritually in Scripture. And so this girl, whether or not she came to faith in Jesus Christ, was rescued from a terrible fate in the power of Jesus' name. I was watching this movie recently, The Prince of Egypt. It's an animated movie about the story of Moses They take some liberties with the story, but overall, it's pretty good. It's actually way better than it really deserves to be. (laughs) I was watching it with the family, and I'm like over here crying at the slaves in Egypt, and and I was kind of struck at the end as they're they're all going through the Red Sea, and they're all running from the Egyptians, and they're scared, but they're, they're seeing the salvation come up, and I was thinking, you know, in a few weeks, half of those people are going to go worship a golden calf. 
And a few weeks after that, they're going to oppose Moses and the ground's going to open up and swallow them whole. Why did God do all this for all these people that he knew were just going to turn their backs on him? And God is in the business of rescuing, not just to salvation in Christ. God is a rescuer, and his power to save physically is often tied to his power to save spiritually. Maybe you see this slave girl, and you can identify with her. Maybe you feel used. You're in a circumstance that is traumatic. You're suffering all kinds of evil. That where you find yourself, that what you're experiencing could be described as demonic. If that's you, God can rescue you. In the power of Jesus Christ, in his name, God can rescue you. Maybe you don't identify with her. But I'm telling you now, if you had eyes to see, to look around you in this room, to look around you in your neighborhood, to look around you in the world, there are people that need desperately rescue. Are we seeking to rescue them? God used Paul to speak the power of the name of Jesus to rescue this girl. And so she is rescued. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the rulers. Notice their concern is not for the slave girl. They're not overjoyed that this demon, this spirit possessing her, is gone. They're greedy. And so they bring them before the magistrate and they make this appeal. They don't even mention that their business is dried up. They mention, hey, these guys are Jews and they're disrupting our city and they're doing things that Romans aren't supposed to do and we're a Roman colony. We're real proud of that, so we should do something about this. And it works. The magistrates strip their clothes off, the crowd beats them, they're thrown into jail without even a, a slight bit of medical care or food and they're shackled in the inner jail. This is not just. This is not comfortable. This is not convenient. This is not what they wanted to do. They want to be there to preach Jesus. But in spite of their suffering, maybe even because of their suffering for the name of Jesus, Paul and Silas pray and sing long into the night with an audience, a captive audience of fellow prisoners right there. In Psalm 42, verse 8, it says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. We see this jailer go along with this injustice. And you got to think as he's falling asleep, he's hearing the prisoners. His house would be right next to the prison. He's hearing these prisoners that he just threw in there unjustly. They didn't get a trial. They were beaten, had their clothes stripped off, and he threw them in there, and he hears them singing. This is a, a beautiful example of joy in the midst of suffering, that the Lord is, is enough for Paul and Silas, that they can sing joy 
and pray through the night to him. This is reflected later in Paul's letter to the, the Philippian Christians when he says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's hearkening back. You saw what happened when I came and when I proclaimed and when I lived out Jesus. You too are getting a chance to do that very thing. And then later in chapter 2, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In the midst of suffering, Paul and Silas have joy and demonstrate that joy. And God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. In Isaiah chapter 49, he compares himself to a nursing mother. He says, could a nursing mother forget her child? And then he says, yet, yet even if she could, I will not. Your name is written on my hands. And so there's this earthquake. Now, earthquakes were common in Macedonia. The scripture does not explicitly say, and God sent the earthquake. But there's this earthquake. And Paul and Silas are released. And God ordains all things. God is at work in all things. And God's physical salvation of Paul and Silas points again to his power to spiritually save. As with the slave girl, as with the Israelites in Exodus. And it seems like their praying and singing into the night had an effect on the other prisoners. In Colossians, Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this seems to have had an effect on them because it says everyone was released, but no one escaped. It to be the influence of Paul and Silas, this short time that they heard of these men who were preaching and were imprisoned unjustly, and this earthquake comes and they don't know what's going on, but yet these men who were unjustly imprisoned do not flee, and so no other prisoners do either. And so the jailer, who was about to commit suicide because he knew if any prisoners did escape, he was done for. He would be humiliated and executed. And Paul stops him. And as a result, the jailer comes and he falls down in fear. He's afraid, but he's also humbling himself. He's, he's grateful before these men who stopped him from killing himself, who stopped the other prisoners from, from fleeing. Indeed, he, call, he calls them sirs in verse 30, the sign of deference this sign of reverence, this sincere attitude of his heart. These men who he had just thrown in jail a few hours earlier, he calls them sirs. And because of the, the power of the earthquake, because of the, the selfless faithfulness of Paul and Silas, maybe also because he had heard what they had been preaching, maybe he even heard the slave girl crying out that these men are servants of the Most High God and come to bring you a way of salvation. He comes to them and says, sirs, what must I do? do be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they answer him very directly, very straightforward, very bluntly. 
believe in the Lord Jesus, and you and your household will be saved. This is reminiscent of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I can find it in my Bible there. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. And then later in verse 32, we see that they expand upon what they've taught him with this this word of the Lord. They're explaining to him more of what all this entails. We see that he washes their wounds, and then all in his family are baptized. You have these, these two washings that are tied together. They're related. We see again the jailer showing hospitality for these new brothers in Christ, just as Lydia had done. And just like with Lydia and with Cornelius, and with time and time again we see in Scripture, the promise extends to his household as all his family is baptized. What we see here is an example of how to live. That Paul and Silas were being faithful in the midst of suffering. They weren't being faithful in order to save the jailer. They were being faithful and joyful in the midst of suffering. As a result, God was at work. Though they didn't know it, God was at work using that in the life of the jailer. It's kind of like uh, changing someone's tire on the side of the road. You can always be ready to pull over and help someone change their tire on the side of the road. Or you could take your tire iron, take your jack, go out to 64 and just walk up and down the highway, just waiting for someone to break down. Just like, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to do it. That doesn't really make sense. That's not really helpful. But if you are going about your life, doing what God has called you to do, and you are ready and willing to help, God can and will use that. See, how we live when we're not in power, how we live when we're not evangelizing, how, how we live when we are actively suffering will serve a mighty witness to those around us. We also see in the jailer that selfless service is not just for those strong, mature Christians who have been believers for many years. He's been saved for a matter of minutes or hours, and he extends hospitality to them. And he, and he speaks to his household and brings them all into the conversation. Hospitality, I have a growing sense. I've heard and read many people say that hospitality is going to be what evangelism looks like. It, it really already has been, but we're sort of getting to the point where it's one of our only options to be hospitable to those around us. And we see the jailer doing that here. And after this, the magistrates want to deal with this issue quietly. They're like, just let them go. No one's the wiser. No one's going to know what's going on. And that's not what Paul is going to let happen. He demands justice. His, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens are not supposed to be beaten without a trial. They're definitely not supposed to be jailed without a trial. You guys are in some serious trouble. And the magistrates, you see it in their fear. They're like, oh, we messed up here. And he's not doing this out of revenge. He wants to correct the slander of Christ. They were accused of disrupting the city. They were accused of, of teaching things that were unlawful for Romans. And Paul wants to say, no. 
This is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is justified. It is beautiful. It is the truth. He wants that vindicated, not himself. And after his release, after his and Silas are, he and Silas are released, they go and they give encouragement to the brothers who are now meeting in Lydia's house. We don't know what they said. Probably had something to do with what it looks like to suffer for Christ, to have joy in the midst of that, what it looks like that God provides. Maybe they shared with him the letter of the Jerusalem Council, which was this good news that, that Gentiles were fully brought in to the household of faith. But they go and they encourage. What does this mean for us? What do all these various stories have to tell us today? It's really just this, that all salvation is miraculous. All salvation is miraculous, whether it happens through an earthquake, an exorcism, an explanation, or just educating your children. All salvation is miraculous. We should celebrate these things. We should seek them out insofar as we are able. All of these salvations are beautiful, wonderful, laudable because God is working to build his church through the power of Jesus' name. He is at work through the faith that Lois and Eunice passed down to Timothy. He's at work through the Holy Spirit, sending them not where they intended to go, but to Philippi a place that had no synagogue and very few people who understood the faith of Yahweh. He was at work through the heart change of Lydia to experience and to believe and to understand. He was at work through expelling this demon from the slave girl, through the injustice of the magistrates, through the joyful singing of prayer and Paul and Silas did into the night, through the power of the earthquake, through the selfless witness of Paul and Silas to the jailer, and through the households of the jailer and Lydia, God was at work. God is building his church through the transforming power of Jesus' name in all kinds of people and all kinds of places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are at work. You are always at work. Oftentimes we don't understand it. We don't see it. We misjudge it even. Father, you are building your church. You are transforming people through the power of Jesus' name in all kinds of places, through all kinds of means. I pray that we would be encouraged by the miraculous work of salvation that you are working in so many different places, that we would hear, that we would cheer, that we would celebrate, and that we would seek to participate in what you are doing. Father, give us this good news of your good news going forth. Lift us up with it. Lend us the power of your Spirit to see it and to join in it. Do what we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.